The Dr. Chris Griffin Show, Season 1, Episode 8. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Now who said that? Welcome to the Dr. Chris Griffin Show, your resource for leveraging systems and technology to ease your workload, increase productivity, and provide you with the time off you deserve to live the life of your dreams. It's time to practice productivity and the passionate pursuit of a better life with your host, Dr. Chris Griffin. The doctor is in. Hey, everybody. Uh, that is one of those quotes that you hear your whole entire life, but you don't always necessarily, you don't know who said it, right? Uh, it's it just over time, it becomes part of the common culture. But in this case, I'm going to tell you who said that. That was It was a guy named William Edward Hickson. Now, uh, also known as W.E. Hickson. Now, he was a British educational writer. He was the author of a book called Time and Faith. Now, I have not read that book, but I'll tell you what, it's got great subject matter because as we talked about way back in, uh, I think, episode four of this season, time is very important, and I think faith is also very, very important. So there you go. He's also credited with writing part of the British National Anthem. So uh, there you go. The, the, the line out of the proverb that he actually wrote is called, "'Tis a lesson you should heed, try, try again. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again." Okay? I like it. I like it. So anyway, uh, British guy, very, uh, very famous saying, very famous proverb. Maybe you didn't know who said it. Okay? Well, anyway, the reason that this is an important quote and one that I wanted to share with you guys today is is for a reason that is I'm getting ready uh, I'm actually getting ready this week uh, to do a full day CE course in Oklahoma City Oklahoma right I'm, I like Oklahoma City it's one of those places I had not been to much until recently and I've been in and through Oklahoma City five times maybe four or five times in the last two years and, uh, you know, it's really not that far of a drive. I, I, I drive a lot of the places I go, and it's it happens to be on Highway 40 or U.S. Interstate 40, and which I can hop on real close to my home and uh, go through Memphis and Little Rock. And next thing you know, you're in Oklahoma City, and you're like, wow, this is actually not that far. But uh, I'm getting ready to do a CE course there for their dental society. And one of the things that I'm, I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about all the mistakes that I've made over the years, right? A lot of mistakes. And uh, because it, it truthfully, who wants to get up, who wants to go to a course and hear the guy that's going to get up there and just talk about brag brag brag, I'm so good, I'm so good, I'm so good. That's one of the things that's just making me sick about the political race this year is just the word I. I'm not, I'm not going to I don't like to get into politics, uh religion or ball game affiliations in public okay because that those things can get heated however um, with my kids at home i'm always like when a, when a, a couple of politicians are up there i'm like all right let's count how many times they say the word i i just hate that uh, but anyway nevertheless uh, i would assume most of the people listening to this of course most of the dentists in america i think we're 90 percent republican so most of you have strong political opinions but uh, nonetheless when I was preparing this lecture and I started thinking about all the mistakes I'd made I thought wow this this is really cool so I may not be an expert about anything 
but I am pretty darn sure I'm close to being an expert on messing things up or making mistakes. And if there is anything that has been a redeeming quality of me in my life, it has probably been the fact that I try, try again after I fail. And that's, that's just one of those things I've always thought. I don't even know who said this. If I could find out who said this quote, I might use it as a quote one time before a show. But, but um, sometime in my life, I heard that it's a lot better to make uh, five decisions, make four of them wrong, get one of them right, than to wait, 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 and then either just make like one decision or just don't even make a decision. Because if you just make the one decision, you got a reasonable chance it'll be one of the four. You know, because if you make five decisions and four of them are going to be wrong, if you only make the one decision and same my time I'm making five, yeah, I got a lot better percentage chance that I'm going to get at least one right. And a right decision is worth a heck of a lot more than a wrong. Because you can usually, you can usually recover from a wrong decision, right? A mistake. Normally, people will forgive you if you're humble, contrite, people will forgive you. Uh, I have certainly found that to be the case because I have made a plethora of mistakes in my life. Um, as as the outlaw said to El Jefe in The Three Amigos. So uh, anyway, I'm just, I just thought I would, as I've been studying my mistakes, I thought I'd share them with you guys. This is the Dr. Chris Griffin Show. You guys should hear my mistakes because they are plentiful. Um when I got out of dental school, and I talked about this last week, when I was in dental school, you know, uh, Dr. Steve Deloach and, and I had said we were going to be implantologists when we got out, and, and we, uh, you know, we did not do that because school got hard, and we got interested in just getting out of school and getting practices going and stuff like that, and I'll still say out of a class of, I don't know how many people, 75, something like that, they graduated with me at UT Dr. Steve Deloach is the only one that had the guts to hang a shingle day one out of practice, uh, day one out of school. I mean, he is the only one. So, I mean, I may stand corrected. Maybe this is a mistake, too, but I'm pretty sure he is the only one that June 1, 1998, had a job as his own boss at his own practice. And it has worked out for him marvelously. I hung my shingle uh, September 1st, 1999. I was pretty close. I don't know if I was number two in the class, but I was pretty close to also hanging my shingle right out of school. So anyway, we wanted to be implantologists. We gave it up. We just pursued other things. But um, I, my first year out of school, I actually pursued an associateship, and I actually went in with my family dentist. And as things go in associateships, as I, when I'm lecturing across the country, uh, a lot of times we'll ask, how many people in here have been an associate? And then a lot of hands go up, you know, 80, 90% of the room goes up. And then I will say, okay, how many of you are with the dentist that you started out with in your first associateship? And like almost every single hand goes down. Inevitably, one or two will stay up if it's a big crowd. And most of the time, those are children of dentists that they went in with their dad or their mom or something like that. And that's just the way it is. And there's nothing wrong with that. I wish my kids would want to be dentists and go in with me someday. But uh, that's it. If you go in as an associate in a practice and you're not related to the person you're going in with, chances are it's not going to work out. So if you're hearing this in dental school, a um, little shout out to the 
I've, I want to shout out and get your name right, but uh, it's uh, Ambitious Dental Students Group, I believe. I got a really nice note from one of their members this past week that said that they had actually studied my dental town courses, and um, he was actually asking for some extra materials that might go with that, those videos, and so I, I, I sent that to my assistant to get to him, and I'm sure she did because she's awesome. But um, yeah, it was awesome. It was really good. I like getting notes like that. If you if you have a, a note you'd like to send me that's a pleasant one, man, I'm all for it. Just go to uh, drchrisgriffin.com and fill out the contact form and send it to me. If you have something to say that's a critique that's not so pleasant, I guess I probably should hear that too. I'm not as eager to hear those things. Um, if you're a dentist, you know, you know what I'm talking about. We don't like to hear negative stuff. We hear plenty of that all day long. So Anyway, uh, getting back on track, shout out to the Ambitious Dental Students Group. I think they maybe originated, I'm not sure, it's just a dental town group, or I actually got an email from someone at Northwestern Dental School and uh, similar type things, so shout out to all you guys, and thanks for thanks for paying attention. Hope some of my stuff could help you. But um, anyway, we, we hung our shingles, and um, we kind of got away from the implantologist thing, however, we decided that, uh, well, I mean, well, let me step back a month or two. July 1st, 1999, my associateship failed. I am without a job. I am sans prospect of any said job. I have a little bit of school debt. I'm not going to say a ton. It's like $60,000 worth of school debt. But, you know, hey, that's debt, 1999. That's still quite a bit. And my wife had just announced to me, guess what? Hun, I'm pregnant. So she's pregnant with our son, my oldest son, who is our firstborn, and uh, I have no job, and I don't know what to do because you know it's not like I live in a metropolis. I moved back home after dental school, and it's a pretty small place. So, but anyway, buckled down, decided to buy my own practice, um, hung my own shingle in my hometown without a single patient, and uh, it's worked out pretty nicely. September first, nineteen ninety nine, opened up. And guess what? After a year of an associateship and a general practice, lots of extractions, lots of fillings, lots of root canals, crowns, and dentures, um, I decided this is not exactly how I would like to practice. I would like to practice the way Steve and I said we're going to practice back in dental school. I'd either want to be an implantologist or something way cool. Um, And at that time, if you're older than me now, if you've seen patients more than 20 years, you will remember the late 90s were uh, dominated by cosmetic dentistry. Cosmetic dentistry had boomed during the 90s. Veneers were the rage. I mean, veneers were just a huge, huge deal. I remember in dental school, I got to do two veneers, and I was so stoked about it. You know, they were pretty awful, come to think about it. We had to stack our own porcelain for those. Are you kidding me? I don't even remember how to do it. I, I was something golly, we did some kind of foil on our dyes and then we'd stack the pour. I don't remember, but it was just gut-wrenchingly terrible. And then they were kind of ugly, honestly. But, uh, you know, I knew there was potential there. And so when I'm my own boss in 99, well, even with no money, I decide, I think I'm going to be a cosmetic dentist. And I asked Dr. Steve, hey, Dr. Steve, uh, we both have our own practices. Would you like to pursue this with me? And so, yeah. He said, yeah, let's do it. So he and I 
along with a couple of other of our friends. Um, shout out to Dr. Troy Kerber from Dyersburg, Tennessee. Uh, we, you know, he didn't go to school with us, but we, we became friends on, in this pursuit. So we headed out and, uh, we signed up for the, uh, Las Vegas Institute, Dr. Bill Dickerson, and, um, went out to that amazing place. And, uh, we believed after we went there that we were going to dominate our local markets with cosmetic dentistry. And, um, you know, we started, we started doing it. We started uh, doing a lot of cosmetic stuff, and uh, I started advertising these fancy advertisements in magazines, Mississippi Magazine, which is sort of an upper-class magazine here, and, uh, you know, spent a lot of money on that, had a model come in for a photo shoot. I did all this crazy stuff. I did not make a dime on that advertising, <laughs> zero dollars. I mean, good grief. I was 25 years old. Who would go to a 25-year-old dentist for a Full mouth porcelain reconstruction that does not this just doesn't compute now that I'm much older and understand what I did not know at age 25. So you know, going along with that train of thinking, started to have some occlusal problems, and uh, you know certainly not blaming any one school of thought, but I thought, well, I'm you know maybe I'm not smart enough to grasp this occlusion. So let's go somewhere else. And so Dr. Steve and I went down to Tampa, Florida, to the Dawson Institute. Pete Dawson, who is an amazing human, a great teacher, learned stuff there that I still use today, actually. And, uh, you know, but that was a pretty big investment of time. The Las Vegas Institute was, you know, the intro course, I think, two weeks, um, spaced out by about a month, carried your own patient, did some veneers on them. A uh, funny story about that, the person I did the veneers on was my hygienist, who's still with me today. She's been with me since 1999. And, um, you know, uh, she's got a lot of capital built up because she made that trip. I, I She was my hygienist. Um, I just hired her, and she agreed to go out there and get veneers done, which, you know, that's a big, that's a big leap right there. So uh, no matter how much she ticks me off to this day, I, I'll always remember she did that for me, so... Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. I mean, uh, listen, if you, if you if you have a dental practice and you have hygienists, you know that I'm just kind of joking. Sometimes they'll really make you a little bit anxious, but um, overall, they're far, their value far outweighs their aggravation. Um, but, you know, it, it's just funny to talk about. But uh, so we go out there to the Las Vegas Institute and uh, she's my patient. She was hard to get numb. I mean, it looked like number eight and nine. This is before, by the way, this is the days before septicane. And uh, can I keep her numb? A, because I'm doing like, I don't know, 10 veneers across the upper front. And uh, we're trying to follow these LVI guidelines. And it's different than the way that I've prepped before. It's just different. And I was 25 years old. My prepping was not the best. So I'm kind of slow at it. And uh, she kept waking up, and it, at the end of the day, I mean, I just, she was in pain, and, I, you know, it just took forever. And so, anyway, we get her, finally get her temporized. She's somewhat, somewhat happy about things. But, you know, that's, uh, that's a lot to do. I mean, it's a lot of preps, and we went out to dinner that night, and she was still kind of numb but in pain. And, uh, you know, I mean, we still laugh a little bit because we went out to uh, this jousting tournament thing at, at the Excalibur Casino out there because the course is in Las Vegas. And uh, they serve you like a chicken with a knife, and that's all you get. And uh, 
you know, it was kind of funny, although a little bit painful to watch her try to eat that chicken uh, with a knife, and that's it. Uh, anyway, when we go back later on to seat the case, my chairside assistant was my assistant, and she's my patient, and uh, we're getting ready to seat this thing, and it's a, it's, a, it's hard to seat a 10-unit case, right? It's kind of difficult, and we're getting everything ready. I'm ready to glue them on, and my I've got my loops on. My eyes are focused on the teeth, and I'm gluing them on and trying to get every margin perfect, and uh, there's a little bit of a delay, but I don't think much about it, and when we're done, my assistant <laughs> tells my hygienist, Hey, you know, uh, the reason there was a delay is I dropped two of your veneers in the garbage can and had to dig them out. So and that is the, anyway, that is the craziest thing um, ever. But they, they, they made amends about it. They, they, uh, they joked about it later. But uh, anyway, I thought that was funny. I was glad it was an employee of mine and not a patient, an actual patient I'd brought from Mississippi to the course. Uh, but anyway, that's the, that's kind of the story of uh, LVI. So we go down to Dawson and we're trying to learn better occlusion. And uh, we did learn a lot about occlusion while we're down there. To this day, though, we, we went to a lot of institutes. We went, we went to the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry meeting in Boston. Um, we actually made an effort to try to hear every single accredited member of the academy speak at, that we could at that. And uh, we actually had designs on becoming accredited ourselves in the AACD. But it, it, as, as time went on, it doesn't matter how good of a cosmetic dentist you are. If you do not live in a part of the country that's conducive to having multiple cases like that, it's tough to make a living. So that was a huge mistake for me to spend, I don't know, 40 or 50 grand my first year in practice on those institutes. Although it really improved my skill level, it probably improved my case presentation skills and my case acceptance percentage it still was 50 grand and I didn't do 50 grand worth of those kind of cases. I just didn't do it. I ended up having to, to do cases like that and having to do discounts and just to get keep my practice up I had to had to do a lot of discounting to do that. And it you know it just became painfully obvious, you know, I am in a blue collar town. There was there was a guy here across the road. If you ever see a photo of my office, you will see a McDonald's in the background, okay? Now, the owner of that McDonald's, great guy, um, whose son is actually a dentist in Waco, Texas, good guy. And um, it, I always asked him, I said, you know, McDonald's, you guys are crowded 24-7. You, your, your parking lot's full. Your drive throughs backed up. But why is it that all these other restaurants in town, they'll come in business, they'll go out of business. They'll come in, they'll go out. He said, Chris... You just have to face it. Ripley is a hamburger kind of town, okay? And it was it is so true. Every restaurant that tries to come in that's not fast food immediately fails or fails within months. And uh, I'm in a blue-collar town, and I was trying to do fancy cosmetic dentistry, and it was failing. So what the people needed in my town and still need to this day is to get out of pain, okay? They want to get out of pain, however that is, whether it's pulling the tooth, whether it's doing a root canal on a tooth. Um, and, you know, you get to do a fair amount of crowns, but you got to do a lot of fillings to get to those crowns. And you get to do some implants, uh, but you got to do a lot of partials to get to those implants. And that's just the way it is. And and so, you know, as, as time has gone on, I developed, basically my whole system is developed on uh, trying to figure out how I can get through 
and do the massive number of fillings so I can do more crowns and the massive number of dentures so I can do more implants. That's just what my whole system's designed around. So uh, that was one of my mistakes. I say that I fell under bad influences by going to the institutes. I, the truth is, I really loved those institutes. They were motivational. Um, I heard a lot of great speakers at LVI. I heard, besides Bill Dickerson, who's an amazing speaker, I heard uh, Nate Booth, who's a great speaker. Uh, they, they had a great hygiene program, and they were very motivational. Uh, however, the hygiene advice I got there was tough in Ripley, Mississippi. It was not the kind of thing that stood the test of time. I mean, I, you can imagine they're trying to get you to sell a lot of soft tissue management programs, and I'm, I'm in a profi town. That's where I'm at, profis. And, you know, if someone needs four quad scale and root planing, they got to go home and save up for a while. That's just the way it is. Uh, so another thing, though, another mistake that I made was when I got back from those institutes, I jacked my prices sky high. I got them as high as you could get them reasonably in Ripley, Mississippi, to the point that my crown fee in 2000 was higher than it is today. Now let that sink in 16 years later. My crown fees were higher in 2000 than they are today. You better believe my crowns are better today than they were in 2000. But I believed that you had to have the highest prices in town, and that would trickle down and cause people to think you were the best dentist. And the only way I was going to get those cosmetic cases I wanted was if people believed I was the best dentist. Okay, so that was that was a mistake. Uh, it really hurt my practice. At times, you could almost say it caused me to go under. Um, really... It's, Ripley's not an expensive place to live, so I probably wasn't going to ever go broke or bankrupt or anything like that. But boy, did I waste a lot of years of potential. And I mean, the late 90s, early 2000s were booming if I had had enough sense to know what I was searching for. And I just didn't. I was searching for the wrong stuff. Then, another mistake that I made, probably brought on by the institutes, was I sent out a letter um, to all my people who had Delta Dental. I was, I came to believe after attending some of the institutes that Delta Dental was a bad place to do business because they really didn't have the patient's best interest at heart, and they certainly didn't have the dentist's best interest at heart. And so um, I sent a letter to all their patients that I had in my practice. Actually, I didn't have that many. And, and I like to say I was smart in a way because I had a few hundred Delta patients. But I only had 100 exactly at this one factory. And I said, you know, I'm going to use this one factory as a test group. So let's see what happens. So I crafted this letter and I, taught, I told the patients, you know, I love you, but I just can't be the quality dentist that I know I am, that I know you want me to be at the low prices that are on the insurance that you're offering me. And so I sent them the letter. And in high, you know, Normally, the thing people come in for in your practice is hygiene, one of them, right? And so you really don't know how a letter like that is going to affect your practice until six months down the road or something like that, right? You just don't know. In this case, had that 100. Now, I ask this in my seminar a lot, and uh, I will get varied responses, and it's hard. Sometimes people have heard me say it before, so they get it. It's kind of annoying. But out of that 100, if you're just being logical, because 
remember, this is Ripley, Mississippi. Now, I either went to school with or I'm related to about 75% of the population, okay? It's just the way it is. So 100 people, just random sampling, work at this one factory. Uh, how many a year later were still my patients? And the answer to that is two. <laughs> two out of 100. So at a 98% uh, rate of attrition out of that population. Thankfully, that's the only letter I ever sent. I did not send it to the entire Delta Dental population and I'd even considered sending it to every PPO that I was a member of. So, um, you know, kudos to me for not making a double mistake. And that kind of that kind of ties into the thinking here. If you make a mistake, try not to make two mistakes. That's in athletics. That's what all your coaches will tell you. It's okay to make a mistake. I mean, it's not okay. But if you're going to make a mistake, don't compound it by making a second mistake. Right? I mean, if, you, if you're in basketball and you drive into the lane and you pick up your dribble, and you have no one to pass it to. It's really better to just stand there and eat the basketball or try to get off some kind of shot that can't get blocked, if that's possible. But it's better to stand there and take the three-second call and, and have the turnover than to try some crazy pass that gets tipped away and lets the other team go out on a fast break. Because that would be a second mistake that led to points. That's compounding the error. And so I did not compound the error on the letter. I did not send more letters. Thankfully, I just made the one mistake and I learned from it. Needless to say, have not made that particular mistake again. Uh, we talked about hygiene programs. Now I got back and we, we tried to redesign our hygiene department around these soft tissue management programs, right? I started, I st my hygienist and, and myself, we started force feeding these programs down my patient's throat. Now, you know how that went over. At first, a few people were like, okay, well, if you if you say I need it, I guess I need it. Let's do it. Okay, I really, I'm, I'm painful. It's nervous. I'm nervous. It sounds painful. It sounds expensive. It is expensive, but okay, whatever. So the first month that my hygienist, who normally did about $10,000 a month in production, the first month, yeah, she did like $14,000 in production and we're like, "Whoa, this is amazing. Why are we not why are we not always done? We're so crazy. We never did this before. We're so dumb." Well, 1 year later, you know how you check hygiene, a year later goes by, same hygienist, same patient population. Her production was like 7,000. It had gone, it had gotten cut in half, and it was down 30% um from what it was before we even tried it. So what that means is a lot of patients left my practice. So it was a big mistake. You never want to let that happen if you can help it. Uh, back in episode six of this year, we talked about the dental bonus horror stories. So I will not rehash that in this episode, but as you heard in that episode, made a lot of mistakes on how I bonused my team. The ones that were with me when we were doing 50000 a month and then they got huge bonuses when we went to 150000 per month. Uh, that just became a huge problem for the practice, a huge burden. It really took the place burning down for me to overcome that huge mistake. So that was a mistake that lingered for about 10 years. Okay? So watch out. Sometimes you can make mistakes that last for a decade. <laughs> if, I've, if I've talked to you anything, let that one sink in. What else? I have made the mistake of trying to run the happiness-centered practice. 
I heard a lecturer one time several years ago talk about his practice in Australia and how it was, you know, he had these charts and he had his staff write down every day their level of happiness or something like that on a scale of 1 to 10, and we tried it. Are you kidding me, man? Ripley, Mississippi, these staff that I was hiring, we're just not like that. It's just not the kind of place. We, I mean, of course, everyone wants a nice, fun practice. But hey, it's a little wimpy, honestly, on my part, to have to try to get people to tell me, oh, what a scale of 1 to 10, what was your level of happiness today? I mean, that just doesn't make sense uh, around here. Maybe that would make sense better in another part of the country. Maybe that's why some of my relatives have moved away and moved off to the the uh, the liberal East Coast and West Coast. Who knows? But I'm in conservative Ripley, Mississippi, and that's just it's just not touchy feely country, you know. So it was a big problem. I tried to I let my staff dictate a lot of policy. I really wanted them to be happy. I wanted to have the best staff in the world. Um, I was always nervous and scared of my staff. I didn't know how to make them um, do the things that I knew we needed to do. I just didn't know how to be that kind of leader. It was like say I was 25 to 30 years old. I was I was not old enough. That was not seasoned enough um, to be the kind of leader that I can be now. And probably in 10 years, I'll be a better leader than I am today. But um, that was a tough mistake, and uh, that one lingered for probably five years before I corrected it. And you know what? Staff rep- responds to strong leadership. And so when I became a stronger leader um, myself, that's when that fixed that problem. So if I've got any advice for you there, don't try to run a happy staff-centered practice. It's impossible. You're chasing an impossible goal you get 10 people together, there's no way all 10 are going to be happy. It's just not going to happen. So don't chase it. You set guidelines, follow them, and be a strong leader yourself. And you know what? They will follow a strong leader. You have a better chance of having 10 happy staff people when you're a strong leader that does what's right than when you go around and try to make all 10 happy because that ain't happening. Let me just tell you. And uh, I guess... I guess one of the, let's see, I guess, well, here's another mistake. Um, when I was when I was turning the corner in 2005 and I realized that the cosmetic thing just wasn't going to happen, I knew that we would have a huge increase in our number of procedures completed if we could just do them right then that day. Because a lot of people would leave the practice, they'd think about it, they'd never come back. There's something we've talked about a lot called the butterfly effect. It's about all the bad things that can happen to a person and the treatment you're wanting to do if they leave your practice uh, and don't do it today. But my staff was telling me, we can't do it, we can't do it, we can't do it. And back then, I had not yet devised a system to make their lives easy enough where I knew they could do it, and so I believed them. And, uh, you know, that was a mistake. So I let them tell me it couldn't be done instead of me actually devising a system, which we finally did, by the way. Um, and we're proud of that system. That's what we're teaching, actually, in Oklahoma City um, and all over. We teach that system. But back then, I let them dictate policy. I let them tell me what we could and couldn't do instead of me actually sitting down and solving the problems for myself. What else did have I done? There's so many mistakes. Oklahoma City, if you guys uh, listen to this, you, you're going to get a lot of mistakes 
I've made a lot. Gosh, I'm going through this lecture looking. I've just made a ton of mistakes. But the final mistake that I will talk about is that I actually hired someone who I felt was going to be a superstar, quote-unquote superstar employee. I was really impressed by her. I thought she had a history, a work history of being very impressive in business. Um, she had been part of a large factory organization in town, and I was really impressed, you know, and uh, she was well-spoken, and everything about her was good. And um, so I pretty much, without doing a lot of research or even a lot of hard thinking about it, I turned the keys to the practice over to her and, and made her the office manager. And that was one of the, that was one, maybe the biggest mistake I made of my whole career because, you know, I didn't think about how that she might mesh with the other personalities in the practice. And boy, was there friction. And, you know, I liked some of the things she was doing, but I didn't love everything she was doing. And, you know, it, it just, it was a problem because, she was strong-willed too, like me, and a lot of things that she would do were kind of countered of the things I was trying to get done, and there were things that were behind my back, and it was just a crazy, crazy situation. As time went on, it became obvious to me I'd made a huge mistake, but I was a wimp. I was a big wimp. I was scared to death. I, I, I thought, whoa, I can never fire this person because, oh my God, it would, you know, they'll probably sue me, and gosh, uh, you know, their family's well-connected and, and all this, and, you know, who knows what will happen. The practice will go down because everyone loves this person. They love her, and the practice will go to nothing. And, of course, she would always tell me, well, you know, if uh, if I ever left, I'm afraid the practice, you know, a lot of patients would follow me wherever that I, I went. And so, man, I was such a wimp, and I was scared, and it was so bad. Uh, one of the darkest days of my practice life was the day I actually – got up the guts to let her go and and when I did man it was awful it was like you know <clears throat> kicking and screaming time I mean it was so bad I'm not even going to get into the details but it was it was awful and um, I felt terrible I felt really I felt like I'd kind of let her down I felt like I let the practice down I felt like I let my other team down I felt like I let myself down you know it was bad um, but it it you know it's after I got over the initial shock and about a week went by, staff person after staff person kept coming to me and they would say, oh, we're so glad that you finally had the guts to get rid of that person because they were making our lives miserable. And, uh, of course, I would always say, well, why didn't you come tell me that before now? I, I had no idea. And they said, well, we were, we just, we didn't know. We thought, we thought you loved her so much that if you, if we said anything, you get mad at us. So, you know, there you go. I was a terrible leader in that situation, didn't have my pulse on the practice. It took me three or four years to get that one right. Uh, but that was that was the worst decision I ever made, and then letting her go and starting afresh, that was probably the best decision I made. So like I said, I have made a ton of mistakes, but hopefully I haven't made too many that compounded themselves. So limit it to just the one and learn from it and move forward. So I think we're... You know, good grief. Uh, I'm just thinking, I've only gotten to about slide number 16 of my presentation for Oklahoma City. I've put together 300 slides for a six and a half hour presentation. So, probably I need to work on getting less long winded or I need to cut some of these slides out before I get there. So, uh, I will let you guys know how it went in a future episode. 
who knows and i might even try to figure out how to record myself and um and play some of the lecture for you guys in a podcast episode we'll just see we'll just see what happens but uh thanks again everybody for paying attention here at the dr chris griffin show every week our subscribership is growing we're so thankful and so proud to to be able to share with you and um like I said, if you've got any questions about anything or critiques, although I love the questions and the praise way more than the critiques, but I'll take them. Uh, go to drchrisgriffin.com, fill out a form, and I will get that. And uh, we will go from there, right? And uh, everybody, have a great rest of the week, and I will talk to you this same time next week. All right. Have a great one, everyone. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Dr. Chris Griffin Show. Be sure to visit drchrisgriffin.com for the latest resources and updates to keep you more productive every single day you're at the practice. So when you're not working, you can do the things that matter most in life. We look forward to having you join us for another episode of The Chris Griffin Show, where the doctor is always in. Always in.